Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Get the Let Out with Dr. Chuck Stead. Uh, Chuck, what are we going to talk about today? Well, uh, since we've just finished some episodes with Cindy Fountain, I'm going to pick up on discussing what it's like to uh, visit the Fountain home and take it from there with a, a title called Nature or Disney. That was a very interesting visit we both made uh, for the last three weeks, and uh, it was actually very, it was fascinating. It was fascinating because you could see in the context of the surroundings what was of greatest value to Cindy and to her people, and uh, that was very meaningful too. So without any further ado, take it away, doctor. Thank you, Joe. So... A visit to Cindy Fountain's home is like entering a transforming flux in existence. Ancient tribal regalia, totems, and animal skins are hung in juxtaposition to modern appliances, plastic toys, and Disney icons. The Dreamcatcher snake staff is over the front door and inside of a computer to be watchful of a computer. Grandfather's hand tools, an icon of hand skills displayed with custom jewelry from China. Owl wings above a plastic Christian image. Everywhere, everywhere there are dolls, small straw figures in an orchid pot, an eight-foot-tall grandmother doll made from a stepladder, dolls snuggled into an overcrowded glass hutch, dolls in the front yard housing bird nests, dolls, Cindy explains, are the totems of spirit world. But this spirit world, with its emphasis on animal speak, seems to draw no line of distinction between the anthropomorphism of Disney and the living, soulful intention of indigenous cosmology, which begs the question, is it nature or is it Disney? The very pervasiveness of the Disney empire could lead one to believe that all snakes are evil, along with vultures and anything cat-like, while mice are inherently innocent and ducks exasperating. How does this reflect on the nature of traditional animistic belief? Or has it informed and in some ways re-sculpted that belief? Biologist and longtime science writer Carol Cossack Woon believes that the naming of nature is an ancient practice, deeply rooted in a close association with nature. She speaks of what biologists call the Umwelt, the Umwelt, which is a German word and that means the world around. For biologists, the Umwelt signifies the perceived world and the world as sensed by an animal. She believes our human Umwelt gives us our stereotyped, hardwired way of perceiving the order in living things. Anthropologist Calvin Martin believes that in the deep past, humans and animals shared perceptions, that the animal world is the deep ancestry of the human world, telling stories that endow animals with human language and human characteristics has long been a part of the native tradition and, as Woon observes, a constant of the human umwelt. In a traditional telling of turtle, turkey, and wolf, the wolf is an image of strength, if not bravado, the turkey is one of intellect, if not of arrogance, and the turtle is one of endurance and constancy. Turtle, turkey, and wolf are on one side of the river, and some good food is on the other side. They plan to see who can get there first. Turkey and wolf both tell turtle not to bother, as one can fly while the other can leap, 
but Turtle can only walk. So as Turkey flies and Wolf leaps, Turtle walks under the water to the other side. Turkey, with his big wingspan, gets caught in an updraft and is blown way upstream, while Wolf, only got partway across, lands in a current and is taken then way downstream. Turtle comes up on the other side, a little wet and very hungry for the food which is now his. Certainly, the story reflects the Aesop tortoise and the hare theme of slow and steady wins the race, a deeply Western moralistic affirmation for the guidance of the plebeian class in ancient times. It is the characteristics attributed to the animals that would draw Woon's attention, and herein she would note that both stories identify Turtle with virtues of endurance, steadfast constancy, and humility, all significant qualities for the act of recovery. And how is this animism of Ramapo-Lanapi traditional stories any different than that of Aesop's moralistic lessons? Are the pre-Christian fables working the same territory as the indigenous stories? Or do they contain that which lends them to a post-modernist context? As Arthur Frank would have said. You know, it's very, actually very beautifully uh, captured in what you just uh what you just wrote. And I, I, I literally, when I left the house the other day after we had recorded the, you know, some podcasts there, I, I was trying hard to try to understand. I had actually videotaped with my phone, you know, some of the surroundings, you know, with, with Cindy's okay, just, just so I could keep it. So I could look at it after the fact. And I was Trying, I was kind of struggling to understand what's the motif here. What is where are we going with the, all of this? It's kind of like a visual cacophony in a way, you know, of all these different objects and everything. And it occurred to me that you know, I, I was thinking, well, is all of this like animal folklore, animal storytelling? Is it being used by these people to express, describe, give voice to? their values and beliefs is that why you know they go to the you know the, there's a certain sincerity and honesty in animals animals don't cheat you know right they don't uh, they don't kill for for any you know stupid reason they don't run for office and they, <laughs> <laughs> they don't run for office that's for sure but um you know all many of us i have a dog you have a dog you know and they're the most trustworthy and wonderful beings you know in your life they just always they they love you and they're glad you're in the room with them and and uh every time you come home it's like uh you know you the first time they've seen you in years and things like that but so i understand why they connect to animals because there's a certain purity isn't there you yeah, know yeah yeah uh but but it seems that when i hear her talk about and when i see what she displays in her home, she's using the animals to say, this is what's important to us. This mm-hmm. is what we value. Would you agree? Is that? Yeah, I would agree. And, and I would add to that, that uh, the indigenous world see the animals as the, the, uh, the oldest of the elders. They came before us. So our first lessons came from them. 
I see. And because of that, the animals ground us because they still speak that lesson. That ancient tradition of theirs is still what they sustain. And we've taken it to, you know, to heights. We've built, you know, the, uh, the nation state based on the constructs that we have created. But we started with what they taught us. Mm-hmm. And what they taught us is, is not obsolete. It's the grounding. Right, right. Okay, let me ask you this. The, there's a, it is a common practice, a comfortable practice to hunt mm-hmm. within this community to take the animal once you've hunted it and to skin it, certainly to use it for food, things like that. So using it for food seems like an honorable and appropriate thing to do. You know, this is survival, and, you know, that's that's w- what we do. That's why we fish, That's et cetera, et cetera. Some people do it for just sport. I could never figure that one out. But but some people do it to, to use the, the values and the... And the uh, the nutrients of, of the animal, but but it, it's there's a dichotomy here. It, it's very interesting to me how they really honor the animals and yeah. their knowledge and their sensibility and their spirituality, and yet they're still, you know, comfortable with. They still kill them and eat them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, how does that work? Because, well, for one thing, uh, complex protein. You know, there there is the 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 business of eating flesh. If we hadn't eaten flesh historically deep in, in our past, we wouldn't have, I mean, I'm going to get a little technical here, but we wouldn't have developed the complex neocortex. We wouldn't have had the expansion of the, of the cell cavity for the brains, for the hemispheres, all of that. We went from being, we literally went from being herbivores to omnivores and ultimately following around the animals that do the hunting, learned how to hunt ourselves so that the meat got fresher. We weren't just scavengers anymore. So there was that structural development in terms of the neocortex, in terms of how we could then process cognitively. It required eating those complex proteins. I often joke with my students, we've developed for so long that now we have such a masterful network of, of neurons that can fire away you know, in our brain that we can now choose to be vegetarians and stop eating the flesh that helped us get here historically. So that's very, isn't that wild? Yes, I mean, <laughs> yes, yes. There is that linear thing. There was not a golden time when we were just vegetarians. It required us eventually in order to develop into what we've become right. to have eaten flesh. We can choose not to eat flesh now, or we can choose to eat various kinds of complex substitutes. But the reality is we had to get here. And in getting here, we had to come, and actually in becoming good hunters, like the predators that we followed who we scavenged off of when they left behind some uh, meat, we had to learn the skills that they had. So we had to become more or less the mindset of animalia. We had to get to that place. So we had to honor it, which makes sense because they were teaching us something and they were our elders teaching us. So where we are now is a place where, at least from the indigenous world, we still honor that. But if we still eat it, then we have to be thankful. We have to pray. There is, in the indigenous world, and I'm sure it's not in the sporting world, but in the indigenous world, there is the business, the understanding of the business of reciprocal reality. We have to reciprocate because what we get, we give. So 
we we are not responsible for eliminating a species. We protect a species that may be in danger. We uh, we do a head count for a community of animals, and we ask that we can take a few of them, but we have already done the head count, so we know who's there within that community. Mm-hmm. There is that whole dynamic. We watched how wolves took down caribou, and we came to the realization that they took down the older ones, the tired ones, or perhaps the ones who were sick. It's the famous story in Farley Mowat's Never Cry Wolf that he verifies by uh, approaching a kill site and breaking open the bone, he verifies that there is the cancer in the marrow. And so we, we watch how they sense who is the easier kill, the one they can separate from the rest and take it down, which keeps the herd strength which means we come to realize that animalia has a way of sustaining itself through generations. Likewise, we do too, but that will mean that we are taking some of them and eating them. So we have to have a a kind of metaphysical sensibility Mm -hmm. that we are grateful. Just like when you say grace before, Christians say grace before their, their, their meal. I, we, you and I sat with my sister Joan at Cafe Yen, sure. and she paused before eating because she was doing the, the correct Christian thing to do and saying grace. Yeah. That idea of a prayer of thanks for what's going to sustain you goes all the way back to a time when the people and the animals were in clearer communication with one another. There was that sense of thankfulness. This is... Uh I'm really glad to hear this because the, um, you know, my sister Kathy and her husband Doug, uh, my brother-in-law Doug, they they are vegetarians and uh, they they decided to do this because they believe it's a healthier way to live, and uh, and it certainly appears that it is because I look at them and I say, well, here's two very healthy people, you know, they they both look they look as healthy as they live. Um, but the person who really taught my family about vegetarianism was my my daughter-in-law, Sam, Sam McLeod, Samantha McLeod. Um, and she, to her, it's a very personal, I think, a very personal expression of who she is and what's important to her. She grew up on a farm, basically. Her, her parents grew up on farms. Uh, she has a love for animals. She, and, and you know, they're... She sees the value of their lives equal to the value of ours. And so she's very uncomfortable with the idea of them being slaughtered, killed, you know, used for for food. And I mean, even to the point of, of an insect. She'd prefer that we catch the fly and let him go outside because that's, you know, and give him freedom because it's, it's an animal and she, she respects that life. It's a very Buddhist philosophy when you protect the insects. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it really and, is. And I kind of, I really admire it. I do. It, it's a little problematic at times when you've got a spread of stuff out on the counter <laughs> and there's a fly flying around. <laughs> but, you know, I I admire her and I admire the belief. But I'm glad uh, to have heard what you just said because I think it kind of, um, it gives us at least a little bit of, of uh space i've been trying to understand well how can i say to her this is why i think it's still important for some people to be able to eat meat and everything now most of us don't say thank you to the chicken or the beef or whatever that we're eating and maybe we should well i could i'm take it one step further and um uh, there is the business of medicine and 
when you when you eat something, it's medicine because it's good for your body, but it's also psychological medicine and it's also spiritual medicine. So an animal has its own story, has its own life. It wasn't just a meal. It was perhaps a, a father or a mother or it had a story of nurturing. Perhaps in the animal world there aren't a lot of orphans. It may have nurtured and cared for other animals that were separated from their parents. They do that all the time. No, I really don't want to eat an animal. Right, right, right. An animal really takes care. So yeah. we have that. and uh, But they also have trauma. It's the real world, and they have trauma too. All of that is part, uh, embodies what the animal is. So all animals are not the same. You know, within, within the same species, all animals have different experiences depending on what their life path is about. So when you take an animal down and you eat the animal, there is not just the, the complex protein. It's not just a potential nutrient. There is also the belief that what that animal experienced is now some of what you have internalized now it becomes part of your experience mm. and likewise when you kill an animal when you take life it is such a we'll say sacrosanct thing to do when you kill an animal when you take life you in that moment literally absorb some of you could call it the karma of what that animal is about so it's a big thing to go hunting. It's a big thing to take the life of an animal. It's a big thing when the work really starts after you've killed it. Now you have to skin it and gut it and butcher it and everything else. That whole process involves you absorbing much of the essence of what that animal embodied. It's a soulful thing. In the animistic world, we're not the only ones that have souls. In the Christian world, they say, well, no, the animals have no souls. And remember, in third grade, we were told that when you die and go to heaven, you won't have your pets with you. Yeah. Um, no, that's not true. In the indigenous world, all things are ensouled. All things are ensouled. All things have experiences. All things, well, we'll get down that road too far. But yeah. you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. So you take that in. That becomes part of you. So you better mean to do this. Now, in war, it, that brings up the question of war, and you, you're killing the bad guys. You're assuming your side is the good guys, and, guys because, and you assume since they want to kill you, you better kill them first, and all that happens. Yeah. And, that's, and you survive it. You come home and you survive it. Apart, the indigenous world didn't need to be told about PTSD. The Western world discovered it in post-Vietnam era, but the indigenous world didn't need to be told about it. Shell shock is what they called it back in the time of World War II. But the indigenous world knew about this all the time. You can go all the way back and look at the various warring conflicts that we've had, and there was a certain acknowledgement of shell shock, and then there was the attitude of toughen up, get over it. No, in the indigenous world, you embrace those wounds or you will carry them incorrectly. You embrace the pain of the thing that you claimed an authority over and took its life, including your enemies, if that's the case, because you're getting their karma. You invested in it. You're getting it. Now you got to work with it. And if you don't acknowledge it, it gets you. It takes you down. Very interesting. Yeah. You know, um, one other thing about Sam is that her, she's so sincere about her feelings this way that my son rich her husband and i'm proud of him for this too and 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 i'm proud of her for for leading him in this way he's now at least a pescatarian 
Oh, really? Uh, yeah. He he's not. He doesn't eat meat anymore, and it's so important to I, him. Explain for everybody, pescatarian. Uh, he will eat fish. Right. He will eat fish, but uh, uh, not not any kind of uh, land animal. And what I really like about it is he's he's so. Uh, he so honors and admires his wife that he'll even tell us, you know, I'd prefer he wouldn't talk about that, mm. you know, when we're when we're here, you know, it it, it disturbs, uh, you know, it's just hunting. You know, I don't really talk about hunting that much because I I don't know how to hunt, but but uh, discussions like that disturb Sam. It bo- they bother her because she's so dedicated to her belief that animals are, you know, to respect their lives. So I kind of love the way um, she's, you know, showing him a new way of looking at the world. And I love the way he loves her and honors her by, by, you know, doing his best to try to embrace that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of special too. The other thing that, that you, you know, you, the, the story is Disney or this particular podcast I think the title is Disney or... or uh, um, what did I call it? No, uh, I think I called it Nature or Disney. Oh, Nature or Disney, right. Yeah. Disney, like, always made it kind of hard to, you know, the story of Bambi. Oh, Bambi, know? the great, the classic story. Oh, my God. Yeah, You yeah. know, and, and, and uh, you know, the man is in the woods, yeah. you know, and things yeah. like that. You know, that Disney has given such personality and life to animals sometimes silly sometimes just animated but but he's made them you know really viable right from mm-hmm. the start mm-hmm. as you pointed out in your story you know mice you know something that we would think of as vermin no not not at disney they're fun the mouse created the whole thing you know that's the way it works anyhow this is very interesting um and so i'm going to wrap it up for, for this one right now but uh, unless there's anything else nope that's that good you wanted to touch uh, on next week we're we're doing an episode called white man's indian white man's indian okay okay sounds interesting all right and with that thanks everybody thanks so much for being with us this week we'll see you next week with get the let out with dr chuck stead bye-bye Now for a word from our favorite sponsor, the Montgomery Book Exchange, your hometown used bookstore. Now at our new location at 84 Clinton Street in the heart of the Montgomery, New York Business District. Now, if you've been here before, you'll love your next visit even more because we proudly share our new space with Astoria Hudson, a clothing boutique run by our good friend, Katie. The Montgomery Book Exchange is a place where great books survive the test of time, where you can read a book enjoyed by someone a generation before you. You might even find notes in the margin giving you an insight as to what mattered the most to the previous reader. That's how Montgomery Book Exchange turns a great book into a shared experience. And the Montgomery Book Exchange is known throughout the Hudson Valley and beyond for innovations like their Facebook Live sales or their intimate author readings and book signing experiences. How about their member-driven book club selections and book club talks? And did you know you can get store credits in the form of Montgomery Book Exchange book bucks? 
when you bring your well-loved and gently used books in for a store credit. You can also find your Montgomery Book Exchange friends every first Friday evening at the monthly Handmade Montgomery event, which takes place from 6 to 8 p.m. This is a wonderful event featuring local artisans and hundreds of beautiful handmade items ranging from pottery to jewelry. For more information, just go to the MontgomeryBookExchange.com or call them at 845-764-1787. That's 845-764-1787. There's one more thing. They have a special location at 8 Factory Street dedicated to your young readers. They call it the Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter, and it features a reading garden where your children can discover the joy of reading in a wonderful and stimulating learning environment. Also at this location, you'll find Miss Claire's Music Cupboard, featuring the award-winning research-based Kinder Music Program. The Montgomery Book Exchange Children's Chapter is open Wednesday through Saturday. Check the website for specific class times that match your child's age. You can also contact the Children's Chapter at 845-522-9652. TheMontgomeryBookExchange.com your hometown used bookstore. You're going to love this place.